You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. widely expected intense Russian cyber campaign has yet to appear. Protest wear as a dangerous turn in hacktivism, information operations and the persistence of independent channels of news, social media as an OPSEC problem, lapses may have hit Microsoft, a second Brazilian gang tries its hand at extortion, a snaky backdoor afflicts French organizations, A.D. Brian Vordren of the FBI's Cyber Division on what the agency brings to the table in cyberspace, Rick Howard considers infrastructure as code, and MSysoft offers a free decryptor. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, March 21st, 2022. We open again with a brief note on the situation on the ground in Ukraine. On Saturday, Ukrainian President Zelensky called upon Russia to engage in meaningful peace talks. Russian ground forces are digging in, in place, along most of their avenues of advance, especially in the approaches to Kyiv, which suggests that the invasion continues to stall. The British Ministry of Defense's Friday evening spot report simply said, quote, President Putin continues to wage war on the people of Ukraine by striking dense urban areas killing and displacing innocent civilians with non-precision weapons, end quote. Apart from the widely reported distributed denial-of-service incidents and wiper attacks against Ukrainian targets, large-scale Russian cyber attacks have failed to materialize, although most governments remain on alert for some such campaign, which they fear would not remain confined to the combat theater. Security Affairs has a timeline of recent cyber activity in the war, Its most recent entries mention Chinese cyber espionage attempts against Ukraine's government, but these seem common, expected intelligence collection about an ongoing conflict and not an extraordinary campaign. The Times of Israel describes a conflict in which hacktivists and deniable criminal organizations have played the most prominent roles. Anonymous has been active on behalf of Ukraine, and the Conti Gang, itself infiltrated by Ukrainian hacktivists, on behalf of Russia. The most significant incidents so far have been some disruption of Viasat ground station operations in Ukraine and some episodic GPS jamming, both of which remain under investigation, but which appear circumstantially to represent Russian operators. Both U.S. and EU authorities have warned satellite communications operators to look to their defenses. So far, according to the Washington Post, Starlink has given Ukraine some surprisingly robust access to the Internet, 
and also the means of controlling some of its drones. Ars Technica reports that Western banks are also taking measures to protect themselves against Russian retaliation against the SWIFT interbank transfer system, from which sanctions have excluded it. But again, so far, no attacks have surfaced. Activists have generally favored the cause of Ukraine in the current war, and some of their methods have come under strong criticism. Last week, a hacktivist, who goes by the hacker name Rhea Evangelist, wrote source code for an NPM package they called Peace Not War and distributed it within the open source by making it a dependency of a popular and widely used NPM module, thus affecting the software supply chain. Peace Not War was designed for use against systems in Belarus and Russia, but even if that form of supply chain attack were deemed legitimate, it seems indiscriminate and difficult to contain. Since then, Russian organizations have grown understandably warier of the possibility of software supply chain corruption. MIT Technology Review reports, quote, In response to the threat, Esper Bank, a Russian state-owned bank and the biggest in the country, advised Russians to temporarily not update any software due to the increased risk and to manually check the source code of software that is necessary, a level of vigilance that is unrealistic for most users. End quote. Hacktivism is susceptible to becoming indiscriminate and uncontrolled. It's also frequently criminal, albeit not usually criminal in the sense of being financially motivated. Computing points out that most Western authorities have discouraged individuals from engaging in hacktivism, quote, participating in Ukrainian cyber attacks from the USA or the UK could violate local laws, such as the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act in the US and the Computer Misuse Act in the UK. End quote. Alan Woodward, a professor of cybersecurity at Surrey University, noted, While I totally understand the sentiment behind the actions of many in this IT army, two wrongs do not make a right. End quote. He added that not only might it be illegal, but it also runs the risk of playing into Putin's hands, who could use the attacks to spread anti-Western rhetoric. Russian President Putin has vowed to purge Russia of scum and traitors insufficiently committed to the special military operation in Ukraine. The Kremlin has sought to crack down on both public protest and online dissent, both now fully criminalized, the Atlantic Council reports. But public protests, by Russian standards, have been surprisingly prominent. This suggests that news other than the official Kremlin line that the war is an ultimately defensive one waged against genocidal Nazis, is getting through. Some of the channels in which it's circulating are surprising. Groups within the widely used Russian social media platform VK, In Touch, are serving as conduits for dissent and unofficial news. The groups involved are, according to Newsweek, long-standing groups focused on common interests such as art, sports, music, and celebrities. VK is by no means a nest of dissenters, the executives who run it are close to the government and have themselves come under U.S. sanctions. The sharing of unofficial news on the war in Ukraine seems to be a function of the sheer difficulty of effective content moderation on a platform with more than 90 million users. The social media platform Telegram has surged in Russia, where it's continued to operate without the interruption and blockage experienced by Instagram, Twitter, and the like, Telegram originated in Russia, which may be why it's been permitted to operate. The Wall Street Journal quotes Ivan Kopakov, 
editor-in-chief and co-founder of the now-blocked Russian independent media outlet Medusa, which is itself surviving in its Telegram feed. Quote, Telegram isn't perceived as a total enemy resource. It's not perceived as a tool of information war against Russia. In Russia, a huge culture of uncensored journalism and so-called journalism appears on Telegram. Telegram itself told the journal it didn't know why it hadn't been blocked, and it didn't know if it would be blocked in the future, but, quote, We believe in freedom of speech and are proud we can serve people in different countries in difficult times, end quote. The Daily Mail says the Royal Army has told its troops to stay off WhatsApp, regarding the platform as receiving too much attention from Russian intelligence services. Troops are chatty, and people tend to be disinhibited online. Reports circulating in Reddit and elsewhere suggest that the Lapsus Group has posted and deleted material that suggests an attempt against Microsoft. Cyber Kendra reports, and points out that the story is early and so far unconfirmed, that Lapsus may have compromised an Azure DevOps account. Microsoft told Bleeping Computer that they were investigating the gang's claims of successfully penetrating the company. The Register last week offered a brief history of the relatively young gang, which is thought to be based in Brazil and which has made a specialty of hitting targets in the tech sector. Lapsus is thought to be a new group, not merely a rebranding of an existing criminal gang. Their approach is unusual in that they don't deploy ransomware, but rather steal source code and threaten to release it. In disclosure, we note that Microsoft is a CyberWire partner. TransUnion disclosed a data breach late last week when a gang, identifying itself as NaughtySecTU, succeeded in accessing one of the credit bureau's South African servers. The gang, which, like Lapsus, is thought to be based in Brazil, demanded $15 million in ransom. Security Week reports that TransUnion has said it won't be paying. Tech Central says the South African Banking Risk Information Center is working with the country's banks to protect consumers who might be affected by the breach. Proofpoint reports that a new back door is being installed in French targets. The attack is unusual in its use of steganography. Proofpoint says in their report that the attack represents new targeted activity impacting French entities in the construction and government sectors. The threat actor used macro-enabled Microsoft Word documents to distribute the Chocolatey Installer Package, an open-source package installer. Various parts of the VBA macro include ASCII art and depict a snake. It's crudely drawn, as benefits an ASCII picture, but a snake it is the attacker's identity and motives are so far unknown. And finally, Bravo MSysoft, the company has released a free decryptor for Diavol ransomware. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta, Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. 
Cyberwire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Rick Howard. He is the CyberWire's chief security officer and also our chief analyst. Rick, it's always great to have you back. Hey, Dave. I don't know if I'm misreading things here, and I honestly, I don't know where the time has gone, but according to the notes I have in front of me, you are finishing up the last episode in season eight of the CSO Perspectives podcast. I feel like I'm still like putting away ornaments from my Christmas tree. <laughs> how, how did you get through an entire season uh, with, without me hardly noticing? Uh, what do you have in store for us on this, this last episode? I know exactly what you mean. I mean, I turned around twice and spring arrived. It was like, gee whiz. What's been going on, you know? So, all right. So for this last episode of the season, I'm delivering some good news, something we can all use in these crazy days of this year. I'm listening. (laughs) Well, when I started this podcast about two years ago, I did an entire episode on how DevOps or DevSecOps, if you like, was going to be the way forward to deploy some of these first principle strategies that I keep yammering on about. But I was frustrated because it seemed to me that the IT people doing DevOps had kind of left the security people in the dust. You know, in other words, they, they didn't bring us along they, as they made progress in building these continuous integration, continuous delivery pipelines, or CICD pipelines for short. And the security community wasn't smart enough to tag along with them. So back then, the gap was widening between what the DevOps teams were doing and what the security teams were doing. Well... Hmm. I'm here to tell you that it looks like both sides of the equation had come to that conclusion themselves and have started to make the necessary course corrections. It's too soon to say that we've got the problem solved, but the one key indicator is that the folks over at Gartner, you know, the folks that do the hype charts about different things, they've placed DevSecOps as just coming out of the trough of disillusionment. (laughs) Right, so so they're slowly put DevOps in the slope of enlightenment, and it's about, according to them, you know, five to ten years away from reaching the plateau of productivity. Right, so Mm. who has that kind of time? uh, Yeah, I know. Okay, but it's better than what I thought. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. 
Okay. So in this episode, uh, we're going to talk about how we got here and the steps that the senior security executive should be taking right now uh, to take advantage of this kind of new development. All right. Well, we will check that out for sure. It is the final episode of Season 8 of CSO Perspectives. That is part of CyberWire Pro. You can find out all about that on our website, thecyberwire.com. Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. And I'm pleased to welcome back to our show Brian Vorndren. He is the Assistant Director of the FBI's Cyber Division. Uh, Mr. Vorndren, welcome back to the CyberWire. I want to touch today on some of the things that the FBI brings to the table uh, when it comes to your cyber division. And specifically, you know, I think there are a lot of um, private organizations out there, and I'm thinking particularly of the small to medium-sized businesses. When when they're hit with some sort of cyber incident, I think a lot of them think that maybe they're too small to reach out to their local FBI field office. They they don't warrant the attention of an organization at the federal level. Is that a misperception on their part? Dave, thanks for the question. Let me start by saying the best assessment that we have within the U.S. government is that we receive reporting on between 20 and 25% of the total computer intrusions that occur against organizations in the country. And so when we're operating with a data set that's only 20 to 25% deep, it does prevent us as the U.S. government, uh, and that includes all members of the intelligence community, from being more effective at preventing additional victimizations against individuals, corporations, or organizations that may not know they're a next target. And I would ask those that are evaluating whether they're too small to warrant the attention to change the question in their mind to this. If I choose to engage the FBI, it may prevent someone else from being a victim. And because of that, do I want to engage the FBI? And we're hopeful that the answer to that question is yes. Not in the spirit of, are they small too small to warrant the services? The question is, that can they contribute to the data set? Can they contribute to us understanding trends, vulnerabilities that will allow us to protect others? And because of that, we have a clear answer to the reporting question, which is that we would encourage everyone to report because it really does put us in a better position to help potential future victims. Can you give us some insights, you know, if I report something to the IC3 website or I call my local field office with, a, with an incident or a question, what should I expect in, in terms of a response? So I'm going to provide two answers to that question, Dave. Um, one is information specific. One of the questions we get routinely is what type of information does the FBI or other agencies need, other agencies being CISA or Secret Service need to really do meaningful work with our computer intrusion. So information such as malware variant, initial vector of attack, whether it affects the IT system only or the IT and the OT, whether we know if there's any unique malware signatures, the variant of ransomware if appropriate, when and if the systems were segregated, are there viable backups? This is the type of specificity and detail that will help us 
align the right resources quickly for the benefit of the victim. We often get the question about, and we call it, we, we name it myth busting, about how is the FBI going to show up to my place of work? You know, simple questions. Are there going to be black Suburbans? Are there going to be right. rain jackets? <laughs> right. Are you going to start going through all of my paperwork, right? Right. And the answer <laughs> to that question is absolutely not. But I'm going to make some recommendations here and then walk you through what it will actually be. The recommendations would be, Develop that incident response plan and bring your inside counsel or your outside counsel into that incident response planning exercise functionality on a very routine basis and work through your concerns and work through your concerns with the FBI before there's actually an incident. What we say is let's lower the barriers to sharing so that we can simply build trust in the moment of a critical incident very, very quickly. Um, So, those are steps that can be taken today with inside or outside counsel that very much uh, lower the temperature at the moment of a cyber incident. But in terms of our work when we show up, we're very, very flexible. Uh, we're happy to engage in conversations about memorandums of understanding or legal documentation that puts a company's mind at ease. We are certainly not after PII of employees or clients. We are certainly not after sensitive information for a company or intellectual property. We are simply looking for elements and evidence and intelligence of criminal activity so that we can bring people to justice or so that we can inform the larger intelligence community ecosystem. And so those are very different paradigms than thinking the FBI is going to show up in a very pronounced loud fashion. That is not the way we conduct our business. And I'll give you two other examples. We've received requests as simple as, hey, can you help us safely take down servers? Because we're not sure how to ensure that we don't ruin our information on our systems that was hit by a ransomware attack, and we don't want to affect evidence that you need. The answer to those questions are always going to be yes. We've received questions um, to help with controlling media inquiries to companies who have become the victim of a ransomware attack. Hey, Brian, or hey, FBI, can you help us take all the inbound media inquiries while we're trying to do meaningful incident response? The answer to those questions is absolutely. We will issue press statements to direct all media inquiries to us. So really, the the breadth of our options to provide support is is quite broad. We even have a victim services division that if employees um, are really, really struggling with what they're going through as a result of a cyber intrusion, we'd be happy to get our victim services involved to help specific employees who are really struggling. So the options that we have are much deeper than technical, uh, but the common thread is respect for what's at stake for the company. And I, and I do think we do that quite well. All right. Well, Assistant Director Brian Vorndren from the FBI's Cyber Division. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Dave. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast, where I contribute to a regular segment called Security. Huh? I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed. 
The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.